me welcome. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. What a delight. Yeah. This this is, is, is such a beautiful work and it covers so much ground, I think, about music it, as you know, it's it's a memoir. It's very much about your own experience and about your own development as a musician. But also, I think about creativity more generally. And I think the subtitle of the of the book says it all: a love story in music lessons. The book is, in many ways, a love letter to music, but it's a love letter to your teachers as well, to the people who taught you how to play. What was it that compelled you to approach the book in that way? To really to 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 write about your teachers as a kind of central. It all started through the great good fortune that um, the New Yorker magazine asked me what I might want to write about. Uh, and the thing I really wanted to write most of all for them was this account of my great Hungarian teacher, George Shebuk, who I met in Bloomington, Indiana, a very unlikely place to ma- meet a great Hungarian guru of music. And uh, anyway, I-, I wrote this piece about him and-, and the joys of learning with him and then the frustrations when I realized finally, like, I had to leave him, you know, I'd become too immersed. And the piece, um, you know, it reached a lot of people uh, who had learned from various mentors and all kinds of disciplines. A lot of scientists, for example, wrote me about it. Anyway, it was a piece about the act of learning. And then I decided to write a bigger book uh, about all the other teachers. And what was funny was that, I mean, it was amazing to recover those memories. A lot of them are very traumatic. Some of them are very funny, and because I was also a ridiculous child uh, in many ways. So it became a kind of form of, of course, self-therapy to remember these moments, but then also amazing to kind of um, rifle through all the lessons and discover for myself the places where, oh, yes, my idea about what music is changed at that moment. They gave me something, and maybe I didn't realize it at that moment, but there, there it was. And to try to put it in, in a form that everyone could read. So, mm. yeah, a lot of it is that, you know, a memoirish account of piano lessons from my first lesson at age five to my last lesson, more or less, last official lesson, which was at age 26 or whatever. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, one of the wonderful things about the book, I think, is the sense that 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 it, we never stop learning as humans, and and that you know, in, in in teaching yourself, you are also learning things about about how to communicate to people, and 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 how to play, and how to think about music in new ways, and to to give us as readers the tools to sort of hear things in new ways. Do you think that the teachers that you've had, and and you talk about a few of them in the book, do you think that they have influenced the way that you that you teach, the way that you approach education? Of course they have um, in, in ridiculous, um, I mean, it's almost like I'm rampantly stealing from my teachers, but maybe the nicer way to put it is like a this incredible oral tradition that comes down of music. You know, my teacher Sheba, he studied at the Liszt Academy with Bartok, and then there's going back to Liszt, and then there's going back to Beethoven. There's all these strands of, of musical wisdom and musical values that connect to life values that these teachers have passed down over. And I, of course, you know, I'm a very different musician than my teacher Shabak was. Uh, I could never be him. I would never, it would never work to imitate your teacher. So exactly. But a lot of his most amazing insights, of course I take, you know, uh, and I put some of those in the book, you know, like the, like Shabak said to me, you know, at some point, you know, I hear the note that you're playing, but I don't hear you hearing it. And somehow that's a kind of act of like when you're performing on stage, 
you have to also listen and absorb the notes as if you are a member of the audience in a certain way. And that's such a beautiful like um, truth about performance and the art of really great music making. And so I, I steal that one all the time. Um, mm. And a lot of his best sayings are are in the book, at least the ones that I encountered. Yeah. yeah. And these wonderful kind of maxims for thinking about, about performance. And I think it's really refreshing to, to, to read about, music education in this way there's a certain cliche i suppose around classical music education as being so much about about discipline and strictness right and i feel that your book paints a much more nuanced picture of what that process of development looks like even if there is a a whole lot of practicing and discipline involved in it too um and you you are our teacher in many ways in this book um and and you are you are giving us lessons about harmony and melody and rhythm and encouraging us to think about them in in new ways um and it would be wonderful to sort of get get a taste of that now i think we're going to listen to uh, the short opening of a of a recording from from your your recording of brahms piano trio um and then we'll hopefully hear you hear you play a bit and talk a bit about that so great um, Good. <laughs> it's almost terrible to stop that melody there because it's so, um, I lost the, the first little bit of it, but one of the things I was trying to do was, well, why not create little lessons of my own, as you said, and try to talk about the most fundamental elements of music with a kind of childlike perspective, abandon some of the <laughs> pretense of being a professional and, and look at some of the things, the most basic elements in a, in a fresh way. And so melody is one of those. And when I was thinking about melodies that I loved, this one immediately sprang to mind. You know, I first played this piece when I was like 13 and, so it's still there in my 13-year-old part of my brain hanging out. Um, and it has particular qualities uh, as I began to think about it and listen to it. You know, it, it starts by rising. Just B, C sharp. And then it skips a note. And then it returns to the note that it skipped. And I was like, that's an interesting basic element of melody. I mean, it's obvious to say, right? That skipping and returning. There, it, again, seems like one of those things we take for granted. But the more that I thought about it, this whole melody is, is based around this gesture, obsessed with this gesture. And what's interesting, too, is that, that um, the top note, the most beautiful one, the F sharp there, it's connected to the previous note as a harmony, but it's desperate to resolve to the next note, the one that we left behind. So the F sharp there is sort of stranded between, sort of torn between the two notes on either side of it. And there's this incredible, the reason we feel that way about that, that moment of music and the, way, the reason that melody tugs at us so much is partly because of that very basic melodic force, which is, as simple as saying skipping a note and coming back to it. Mm. 
you know, mm-hmm. and this, <laughs> and what the, what's so amazing is as the melody goes on, he keeps revisiting this idea of, of skipping and returning in different harmonies and different ways. And, and it's like, there's this constant also hyperlinking that's happening within the melody with, without us knowing it, the parts of the melody are constantly remembering other parts of the melody, rhyming with them. Uh, and so the act of memory itself is woven so much into the way that we experience melodies. So the chapter is all about, that chapter is all about that, trying to unpack that both for professionals like me and for any, hopefully anyone. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I love that idea of hyperlinking as this kind of internal memory that a, that a piece of music can have and that there's so much going on there about yearning about sort of yearning for something that that might be in the past or in the recent past and and so much of of, of the writing in the book as you say about about um offering us ways to hear things is about the relationship between music and emotion um there's a there's a sense that you're kind of teaching us to listen <clears throat> to listen emotionally do you think it's important to play with emotion too, right? Uh, that that one of the one of the moments that really struck me was when you're you're writing about your experience um, in college, and and one of your teachers asks you to think about the saddest thing you can think of when you're about to play. Um, and and I, yeah, I wondered if you could speak a bit about that, about the importance of sort of of the pianist accessing something um, in order to to play to play a piece or to give it to give it sort of that meaning. Yeah. I mean, those you you hit upon two of the crucial junctures in the book for me. That lesson when he's Norman Fisher, my cello teacher in Oberlin, or my friend's cello teacher, I was accompanying him. Um, he asked me and when we were playing this Beethoven tune, you know, very slow, mournful hymn that a hymn that's sort of become a funeral march, you know. And he said, yeah, think of the saddest thing that you've ever experienced. You know? and, and it was weird because none of my previous teachers of any kind had ever asked me to access my own emotional life in that way. And I was, it was strange why, why they hadn't. What was interesting then, like five years later, or a few years later, then my next teacher, Shabak, took it to the next level, which is you don't, you don't just have to access the emotion, but you have to access the truthful emotion, <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't just emote, but you have to find the, the, the truth concealed within the musical structure. And, and once you've done that, the piece will in a way play itself. So those are two different levels of thinking about accessing emotion. When you, when you play, one is very cathartic, one is very personal, right? And the other one is, you know, more inhabiting the musical world or musical thinking of another person or another culture. Right. Yeah. yeah. Do you think those truths change over time? I mean, like something else that 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 you describe in the book is the sense that it's quite hard for a musician to ever sort of still know a piece, right? That any process of returning to a piece of music is a is an act of relearning. Um, do you have you found in your work that there are certain pieces that you might play differently now than you did, say, ten years ago, because of as a result of different life experiences or different sort of ways into that truth. And it's always changing. Definitely. I mean, my teacher Shebuk, you know, he was from a certain generation. They had certain values, you know, and I try to talk about what those, those, which was their, in a way they were exiled from their homelands, right? They escaped first Hitler and then the 
communists and then, right? And they came to America. And so their musical values were in a way the only thing they had left to hold on to. And they were desperate to communicate them, right? And then I I love some parts of those values, you know, and believe in them profoundly. And yet I can't help also interjecting some of my values, which, are, as you say, constantly changing um, what's the, when I play a Mozart concerto, how, what are the things that I pay attention to? What are the things that it means to me? I mean, it's come to mean so much more to me these days, for example, that Mozart is made out of a braid of serious music and lighter music and that he's constantly trying to el elide or erase the distinction between serious and unserious or high and low, so we, so to speak. So that's become more important. It wasn't important to me in my 20s. I just loved Mozart because it was beautiful. Do you know what I mean? But for me, it, it's acquired a more social significance. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That's that's fascinating. Also, uh, because I another thing you mentioned in the book is sort of the ways that like popular culture can kind of demonize classical music in some ways, right? As being sort of un unsexy. And 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 what I would love <laughs> Which to Which it often hear... is, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> but like one of the things I'd love to hear you talk about, just we have a few minutes left, is it's the idea that harmony is 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 about sex in some way, right? This is a, an idea that you introduced in the book that I thought was fascinating. The idea that that the con the very musical concept of harmony about things coming together uh, has a has a kind of erotics or like an erotic meaning, um, mm. and it feels like something of what you're doing in the book is sort of is 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 allowing us to hear the sexiness of classical music, right? Well, I hope so. You know, it's kind of a comedy chapter, that one about Bach and sex in some ways, because it's a little bit ridiculous. And yet I think there's, there's a truth there, which is that, you know, the, what we call Western classical harmony, right? The whole art of harmony that sort of congealed around late 1600s. It's so much built around, uh, you know, basically the movement of the dominant to the tonic, the desire of one chord to go to another. And if you add another note... It makes that chord even want to go even more to, to and and this sort of calibration of the desire of one harmony to go to another. So I talk about this little famous, you know, that everyone knows the Bach prelude, which seems like the most innocent thing in the whole world, right? You know, but these chords, and at the beginning, it's just a simple. We're home, and we do do two beautiful treble chords, and then we come back. Then we begin to sort of wander and look around. They get more complicated and they, this one really wants to resolve, but they can't quite, it's not yet. Ah, yes, that one. And then a couple simple ones, a couple of simple ones. And again, complicated, right? But then at the end, Bach unleashes his most, you know, for, for the entire second half of the piece, he just sits on one bass note and then unveils one sort of note on top of it after another. And there's this incredible sense, even within this tiny piece of, you know, a, a almost uncontainable um, desire. I think that's one of the reasons that piece is so beloved and so famous because there's so, so much harmonic tension concealed within it. And Bach did have quite a few children. so. Objectively, he was pretty beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's a great place to end. <laughs> Thank you, Jeremy, so much for being Thank here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, what a pleasure. Thank yeah. you.